Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Swinney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Let's get straight to our next guest. Richard Briefo is Professor of Litigation at Columbia Law School. We have a lot to speak to you about, Professor, not least the fact that the House has just introduced an article of impeachment against the president, the second impeachment for the first time ever of a president, potentially. But that said, what is your base case scenario for how rebuke of President Trump proceeds? Well, at this point, it looks like the House is planning to go ahead with an impeachment proceeding, unless, which I guess beginning to seem unlikely, Vice President Pence and the, ca- and the cabinet moved to remove the president under the 25th Amendment. So it does seem as though the House is quite serious about beginning impeachment proceedings possibly as early as tomorrow or Wednesday. So, Professor, let's assume that the, uh, the House does move forward. How do you think the timing will play out in terms of the Senate? Well, that's a good question. I think right now they're making some... Um, uh, the initial comments are they want to get the, the House wants to take care of the impeachment. Remember, impeachment is the equivalent of an indictment. Uh, the, uh, you can, the, all the, the impeachment means is the House has called for a trial in the Senate. Um, the actual any um, conviction would require action by the Senate, as we saw last year, and like the impeachment that grew out of the the Ukraine uh, uh, phone call. Um, so the House could could do this rather quickly. Uh, what about the Senate? That's a good question. Senate, I think, is out of session right now. Uh, Leader McConnell is talking about not bringing them back until the 19th. Um, the, the House um, Majority Whip, uh, Congressman Clyburn, is talking about even not even sending over the impeachment uh, decision, the impeachment resolution to the Senate until sometime after the start of the Biden administration, so as not to get in the way with the, for the opening days and weeks of the new administration. So it's a little hard to tell. Uh, when it, it, it does seem as though it's quite possible that an impeachment could be voted soon, but it's hard to tell at what point it will move from the House to the Senate. Exactly. There's talk of, you know, 100 days even, yeah. allowing Biden to have his 100 days. What about the idea that it's a sole article of impeachment? It is regarding inciting the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. In your professional and legal opinion, was that the right charge? And is the president guilty of it? Well, I notice they actually combine that with the president's phone call to, to Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia, uh, pressuring him to uh, find new votes to, in effect, to change the outcome of the election. So it is primarily, of course, about the, uh, the attack on the Capitol, but I think there were other, other statements in it that he um, followed prior efforts to, to subvert and, su- and obstruct the certification of the electors. I think they weave it together in that sense, is that the president both his, by his phone call to the Secretary of State of Georgia and by his inciting speech at the Ellipse, was trying to block Congress from doing its constitutional duty. I think it's a good argument. I mean, I think obviously you need to figure out maybe to parse the exact language of his speech and everything, but uh, the more this looks like this was a, a, a clear-cut effort by the part of many members of that mob to literally block uh, the certification of the vote, that is an aspect of an attacking, attacking the operation of the government, which fits within the model of sedition and insurrection. Professor, talk to us about the 25th Amendment uh, and what's kind of the calculus behind that? Does it have to be initiated by the vice president? 
Yes, I think it does. Um, I mean, I think that um, the 20th Amendment really emerged in the 1960s as a way of dealing with presidential disability. Uh, disability, short of outright death. president okay. might have a stroke or heart attack for some other reason, be incapable of fulfilling the duties of his office. And it comes up with a process where the vice president, uh, with the concurrence of the cabinet, can take over, notifies the Congress. Um, the president is potentially could challenge it. Uh, and there's a process for back and forth for congressional resolution. But um, the first step does require action by the vice president. And um, I mean, candidly, it really wasn't meant for this kind of situation, but of course, I'm not sure anything was really meant for this kind of situation. Yeah, and I mean, Nancy Pelosi clearly has several plans at her fingertips, and there's also a Plan D that's getting talked about, the 14th Amendment, Section 3. This may apply to the president and or also to those who wanted to, you know, not recognize the certification. What do you imagine is the path forward with that? Will it get used so 14, 14th Amendment Section 3 is a provision that was added after the Civil War as a way basically of saying that members of uh, uh, people who had officers of the Confederacy who had been in part of the U.S. government, people who had taken an oath of allegiance to the United States before the Civil War and then, in effect, broke that, that oath and joined up with the Confederacy as, as government leaders or as top generals there, would be denied, would be thereafter denied any ability to hold U.S. government office again. That's the, that's the background. Uh, and again, it uses the, but it uses the language of participation and insurrection. And so uh, the idea there would be, again, if you could show that somebody participated, in, somebody who had sworn the, an, oath, an oath of office, like the president or a member of Congress, uh, were participating in insurrection, that would be a basis for denying them the right to hold uh, pu- uh, public office in the United States. Um, it's not clearly self-executing. Someone would have to determine that that's what they did. So, uh, and, of course, you would have to determine that what they did constituted uh, insurrection. Um, the president's case, there's a good argument. Not all of the members of Congress uh, who you know, voted to oppose um, the electoral certification would fall into that category. I think people are thinking about it mostly in terms of Senator Hawley, maybe Senator Cruz, particularly people who gave more inflammatory, made inflammatory statements, I think particularly Senator Hawley, and maybe so, some of the members of the House. Right. So, Professor, if the House is able to deliver the articles of impeachment to the Senate perhaps sometime uh, this week, what is incumbent upon the Senate to do in terms of timeliness, in terms of acting? They are supposed to take it up right away. I mean, that is the procedure that's been set up. It's supposed to become the first order of business, and they are supposed to take it up right away. So I think the House is... I mean, I think in some ways this, this impeachment thing has really three things driving it. Uh, one is just the sense that something has to be done, uh, that this was maybe the most outrageous thing an American president has ever done. So something has to be done. Second is to get him out right away. He's still there at this point. Again, people are counting the hours. It's, it's 10 more days. He's in charge of the armed forces. He's in charge of the nuclear codes. And there's, a, uh, I think, a concern that maybe we'll do something improper again. Uh, and then third is to, in effect, block him from being able to run again. Uh, and that's one of the things. Uh, the impeachment itself doesn't automatically disqualify for future uh, holding office, but it's something that the Senate has the power to do if it should convict, is to disqualify. And at this point, I'm yeah. not sure which, all three of these things may be at play. Uh, the longer they delay any action, the more it's really about the first and the right. third. Richard Brief- uh, Briefo, thank you so much for joining us, Richard Briefo. Uh, 
Joseph P. Chamberlain, professor of legislation at Columbia Law School, helping us break down uh, the impeachment process, which uh, looks like it's about to begin as the House uh, introduced its articles impeachment. Well, of course, it is a great pleasure to speak to our next guest. Susan DeVore is chief executive officer of Premier, which is the health services company that's listed on the Nasdaq under PINC, and she joins us from Charlotte, North Carolina. Susan, thanks for joining. Scott Stringer, the New York City Comptroller, coming out today and explaining that, you know, the forms online and the process for getting put in line for vaccination is an absolute mess. Talk to us about how better the vaccine can be rolled out. Thank you so much for having me. Well, the truth is we've got to get from 250,000 vaccinations a day to 2 million a day. And so this is, you know, the biggest supply chain challenge probably uh, in history for healthcare. There are several systemic issues. First, we've got a hesitancy problem. We've got people who are not willing to take the vaccine. We've got to do a lot more education. We've got to get people willing to take it. Secondly, our healthcare systems, the premier hospitals would say staffing, is one of the very largest challenges they have. You know, their nurses are taking care of all the COVID patients, and now they're also doubling up on providing vaccination. So we need help with staffing. The distribution challenges, you know, are talked about a lot. There are 64 different state and territorial plans. And so the lack of centralization and even the lack of standard processes across states, huge issue. And then there are supply shortages and all kinds of communication gaps. So we're early in the process, but but there are lots of improvements that need to be made. So, Susan, one of the questions is, you know, or one of the areas of frustration, I guess, for some people is, yes, we, we are in the early stages of this process and there will be bumps in the road, certainly. But when you get, uh, you know, let's say 10,000 doses delivered to a, an, a vaccination point, yet only two or three or 4,000 have actually put in people's arms, the question then becomes, what are we waiting for if you don't if someone doesn't want to take it, go to the next person. So I guess there's a question of sticking with the phase one A, B, C protocols versus just getting as many shots in as many arms as quickly as possible. How do you think that's going to play out? You know, there's a lot of inconsistency state to state. So part of the problem is hospitals, premier hospitals don't even know if they're going to get it, how much they're going to get, Mm. when they're going to get it. They're worrying about having enough for the second dose. And so I think people are being cautious in terms of going too fast down the prioritization list because the worst that they think could happen would be you give them one dose and you don't have that second dose. Having said that, I think we are being overly cautious uh, as a country and we ought to be using technology to identify all the people out there who want to get a vaccine uh, and are willing to get a vaccine. And then we ought to set up more um, sites for vaccination, National Guard in some places, maybe the retail CBS Walgreens boxes, uh, so that we actually have a, a way to accelerate this. You know, with a normal flu, it takes three months to get people vaccinated. And this is much more urgent, and we have to change our processes in order to get people vaccinated. How does Premier work with the various states? It seems like because it's a state-by-state issue, it's obviously slightly different for every state. And, you know, a company like yours, is it difficult to to manage all that? 
So Premier has 4,100 hospitals and hundreds of thousands of providers across the country. We work through the inside. We work through the healthcare systems and all of the things that they're trying to respond to uh, at a state level. We have a big supply chain organization. And one of the things folks don't talk a lot about is, you know, these, these vials are overfilled so you can get six doses instead of five. Well, the kit only includes five needles. So you got to go get needles and syringes, which are on shortage. The kits did not include any gloves. Um, and most clinicians want to wear gloves when they're vaccinating folks. And so we've got a shortage of gloves. Uh, so what Premier is trying to do is make sure we've got syringes, make sure we've got needles, make sure we've got gloves, make sure we're helping healthcare systems share their best practices and compare notes about how they're dealing with the various state programs. And those, you know, states that are doing a better job of accelerating the vaccination are sharing how they're going about that with other other states. So Premier is kind of a critical piece right in the middle of all of the activity at the various state levels. Susan, should there be federal guidance, federal coordination of a vaccination? And if so, how? You know, we believe at Premier there should be federal guidance. There should be a standard reporting process. Maybe there could even be a universal scheduling process. You know, the CDC today is reporting the doses, but you don't know how many of those are first doses or second doses, and it's not a problem yet because not enough time has passed, but it will be a problem in the future. So we need federal guidelines. We need federal standards of reporting. We need federal you know, technology support. We can use federal and state resources like National Guard and others to accelerate this process. So yes, we believe you need a lot more federal guidance and then you need state level execution of the broader vaccination plan. Susan, thank you so much for joining us uh, once again. We always appreciate your perspective. Susan DeVore, Chief Executive Officer of Healthcare Services Company Premier, uh, based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Just getting an update on the logistics uh, of getting these vaccines out there into the marketplace and into patients as quickly uh, and as efficiently and as safely as possible. That's been a a challenge uh, so far, but hopefully things will improve. Well, one of the many fallouts to come from uh, the um, what happened at the Capitol last week has been the role of social media platforms. What role did they play uh, and what role should they play going forward? We saw many of the social media platforms uh, drop President Trump's account, ban President Trump's account. That's raising some questions about free speech versus accountability. To dig into that, we welcome Mark Douglas. He's the CEO of marketing firm Steelhouse based in Los Angeles. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for joining us here. So we had Twitter, we've had Facebook ban the account of President Trump. How do you think those social media platforms and Amazon as it relates to Parler, how do you think they came to those decisions? Okay, well, obviously, I think the... um what happened last week at the Capitol, plus four years of history, you know, kind of um, the cumulative effect of that um, led to that decision. I think that the Twitter and Facebook banning his accounts is was somewhat expected. What's unexpected, I think, is um, 
Apple and AWS and the, the actions, you know, they've taken that go beyond Trump. And so, you know, there's just a climate right now of, of making these kinds of decisions. And I don't I think there's still a lot more to come in terms of where we settle in, in terms of what's allowed and what's not allowed. Yeah, that was really fascinating. Parler is funded by, among others, Rebecca Mercer, and it builds itself as a platform really for all that protects the First Amendment rights of Americans. But honestly, it did seem like perhaps some of what happened on Wednesday, if not organized on Parler, was at least chatted about on Parler. And, you know, it didn't hurt that people were sort of suggesting things to each other. And then Apple came out and said it was going to take it off its app store and Amazon Web Services said it wouldn't host it anymore. What is the future for Parler, whose CEO insists that nothing illegal is is not dealt with, that they take down illegal things and anything else is completely legal? Yeah, so I think there's two issues there. One is Parler, although um, the a uh, lot of what people view as right-wing discussion is occurring on Parler. Parler themselves just view themselves as champions of free speech. That's what they say. And I don't think free speech is a Republican right-wing issue. So I, I'm not sure there's as much support for, you know, kind of taking apps down at, out of the app store. I think a lot of companies, ironically, including Facebook, think that Apple has a heavy hand when it comes to the app store. And, and you know, Facebook in December did full-page ads in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times and other publications essentially railing against Apple's decisions as it relates to, to the, um, the App Store and there are other companies that are suing Apple. So now Parler, for a different reason, is now in that bucket, ironically aligned somewhat with Facebook and that Apple is exerting too much control. And so I think you know, that's the first part of the issue. The second part is coming out of the App Store I think Parler will relaunch as a mobile app and, um, and, and I think can do so relatively quickly. And so, again, that's a way, for, you know, to just use the open Internet um, to put apps out there or to put websites out there rather than relying solely on Apple, who, who's been somewhat, quite frankly, hypocritical on the topic. So, Mark, do you expect this, this discussion, again, this whole First Amendment issue, accountability, free speech to, I guess, you know, retrain the lens of Washington, D.C. Congress regulators on the Internet uh, as it relates to kind of these free speech issues? Um, I think obviously it's a hot topic, but I I think actually the users of these platforms um, are ultimately going to somewhat retrain the lens. So keep in mind, only 10 percent of Facebook's users are in the United States but 40% of their revenue is in the United States. So if you have, you know, a lot of U.S. users of Facebook and of Twitter, because there's similar type numbers for Twitter, if you have a lot of users for, um, for, of Facebook and Twitter essentially, you know, feel that these platforms are being unfair, in particular around free speech, um, it doesn't, t- it takes a lot of people, but as a percentage of the total number of Facebook users, it doesn't take a lot to have a very big effect on their revenue, which is going to have a huge 
huge effect yeah. on advertising mm. and have a huge effect, I think, on Wall Street, which you're already seeing Wall Street somewhat respond to. I think some of the drop in Twitter and, and um, today is not just about Trump. It's about savvy investors realizing that, you, that Twitter cannot afford to lose, you know, a third or quarter, you know, of their their U.S. user base, that 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 would have a devastating impact on their financials because they're so dependent on the United States for for revenue. So fascinating to see what happens next. And you have to wonder if these companies aren't concerned about legal liability as well, if it can be proven that there was organization for some of the events on their platforms. Our thanks to you very much for joining us today. Mark Douglas is CEO of Steelhouse, marketing firm with a lot of experience in uh, social media marketing and so on. Interestingly, Paul, Bloomberg Intelligence suggests that Twitter's advertising base will actually grow in spite of its ban on President Donald Trump right now. And we'll have to see if that's the case. Well, it is time for Bloomberg Opinion. So let's welcome Bloomberg Opinion columnist Brooke Sutherland, who has a great opinion out about corporate America and how it responded to last Wednesday's events. You know, it's really interesting. Only one major business group, and that's the National Association of Manufacturers, signaled the president out when they were denouncing what happened on Wednesday. Many, many big companies from J.P. Morgan to Goldman Sachs denounced the violence, but only this one group actually mentioned President Trump by name. Brooke, you write about this because it's fascinating that it's, it's a pretty conservative group that actually ended up doing this. What led to the decision? Sure. And, you know, I think we should say, too, that they didn't just um, call him out by name. They called for the vice president and the cabinet to seriously consider removing President Trump from office with the 25th Amendment. So this was a pretty incredible statement um, from any business group, like you said, but especially from the National Association of Manufacturers, which has historically, you know, really aligned itself with conservative priorities. Uh, They advocated very aggressively for the Trump tax cuts in 2017, for example. But, um, you know, I think for this group in particular, that the frustration level with the antics of the Trump administration has been rising for months now. Um, You know, the head of this organization uh, labeled the protests uh, over, you know, the economic protection measures that were taken in the wake of the coronavirus um, as idiots, uh, saying that, you know, if we try to rush reopening the economy, that's going to be the detriment of everybody. Um, Also, you know, came out very strongly against the efforts by some Republicans in Congress to, uh, you know, argue against the certification of the election results. And I, I think where this frustration stems from is that you know, the reason why the, the National Association of Manufacturers has been aligned with Republicans is that they have tended to be the pro-business party, that they've advocated policies that are good for businesses. And that has not necessarily been the case um, this past year. I mean, if you look at the handling of the coronavirus pandemic and, you know, the fact that stimulus became such a political football, the fact that any kind of, you know, aggressive progress on stimulus measures was sort of turned into a sideshow with this election narrative. I mean, that is not good for business. That is not what uh, manufacturers were certainly hoping to see from a Republican Party. And your manufacturers, Brooke, I mean, as you've written about before, they've actually, I mean, they've really stepped up uh, during this pandemic, whether it's, you know, Ford or General Motors, you know, making ventilators or Boeing, you know, making face shields. So they've really stepped up and and, and tried to be part of the solution here. 
They really have. I mean, it's been incredible. I know, you know, corporate America takes a lot of flack and some of it is obviously very well deserved. But in this moment of need, we've seen manufacturers across the spectrum really step up. And that was, you know, in the crunch time of March and April, as you referenced, these companies that, you know, have never made face shields, face masks, ventilators before stepping in and saying, okay, we have machinery that we're not using. How can we help? Um, But then also, you know, on the vaccine distribution front, you can't make vaccines without equipment from manufacturers. Uh, You can't distribute the vaccines without the logistics companies, FedEx and UPS. And so these companies have been working very, very hard to do whatever they can to try to get the economy back on track, to get steer us through this very unprecedented situation. And I I don't know if those efforts have been fully appreciated um, by the federal government, which at times has seemed to be sort of floundering in its response effort. Um, And like I said, you know, that response effort has increasingly become sort of a sideshow to some of these more political considerations. And that's not good for business. Some companies have said that they will not donate anymore to members of Congress who did try to overturn the election. Uh, Some have suggested that they won't donate to any political party. Goldman Sachs in particular is saying that for the foreseeable future, there will be no political donations. Are these bold moves on the part of our corporate titans, Brooke? Uh, You know, I I can't speak to the banks specifically as they don't cover them as closely. I mean, I think time will tell. Uh, how firmly they stick to these initiatives that are coming out now. I mean, obviously, this is a moment where it's easier to do something. Um, now, whether, you know, these commitments have staying power, I think, is a question for a different day. It's my understanding this is a pretty light time of year for political donations yeah. anyway. But, you know, I think that obviously this is something that people care about. And I think that we're living in a moment where people are looking to corporate America to be more of a leader, that, you know, it's not an option anymore for these companies to stay silent when questions about, you know, the fundamental nature of our democracy are being raised. And so, you know, I think there has been some question about when we did get into the Biden administration, whether corporate America could sort of fade back into the background and if there wouldn't be quite as much pressure on these leaders to come out and make statements in the wake of events. And I think, what we're seeing is evidence that that pressure is not going away and that employees are going to want to work at places where their companies do take a stand. Um, And so, you know, I I think this pressure for accountability is going to persist. Now, whether that actually translates into, you know, where companies put their money, I think we have to wait and see. So, Brooke, you've covered the industrial America manufacturing sector for a long time here. What do you think or how how are some of these industrial companies and, and, and trade organizations, how are they viewing Uh, the incoming Biden administration? So, you know, I think there was this narrative out there that the Biden administration was going to be bad for corporate America. And I don't know if that's really true. I think when you sort of drill deeper down into the outcome of the election, now that we do have, um, you know, a decision made on those two Georgia Senate seats, I think this could actually be a, a pretty good outcome for manufacturers. I mean, the big question mark is what happens on tax policy. And certainly, you know, there's a lot of U.S. manufacturing companies that are heavily geared towards the domestic market and, and would, you know, face repercussions from tax policy changes. But on the other hand, you know, an infrastructure bill is, is obviously a boon to the manufacturing industry. And this is something that companies had hoped to see under a Trump administration. And that did not happen in large part because congressional Republicans were something of an obstacle to that. And so I think, you know, if you do have a unified government under the Democrats that does pave the way for some sort of infrastructure spending down the road, which I think could be a real benefit to these companies. And, you know, even in the shorter term, 
talking about coronavirus stimulus, that does seem to be a priority for this administration. That can be particularly helpful for the aerospace and defense industry, which, of course, is still struggling uh, from the fallout of the pandemic. And, you know, there was some additional stimulus that went to the airlines under the most recent bill that was passed. But, you know, some questions about getting the aerospace manufacturing industry in a place where it's stabler and stronger to be able to be in a position to respond to that demand when it does come back would certainly be beneficial. Hey, Brooke, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate chatting with you, as always, about all things coming out of industrial America. Brooke Sutherland deals and industrials columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. You can read Brooke's work and all of the good work from our Bloomberg Opinion columnist at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or O-P-I-N go on the Bloomberg terminal. It's interesting to see um, Industrial America. We've seen the manufacturing data, Vani, pretty solid over the last uh, four or five months. So the industrial part of the economy is doing pretty well, gearing up for what it expects to be uh, a stronger back half of 2021. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Vani Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Vani Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.